right. My game show walk-up music. I never know when you get the two of them back there in the sound booth together. I never know what's, what's coming our way. Hey, welcome. Good morning, everybody. How are you guys doing? How many of you are either currently sick, feeling like you're about to get sick, or just came out of being sick? Yeah, some people are like, I don't know if I'm allowed to raise my hand right now. But, man, it seems like everybody's dealing with something. So, Gabe, my love, if you're at home, we miss you. Everybody misses you. Um, wish you were here, so, but she's getting better. Um, we have a good, I think, a good message for today. It's kind of a continuation of what was happening last week. And it's been such a, such a significant week worldwide. So uh, Lent started. Uh, Ash Wednesday was this following Wednesday. Um, sometimes at this church we'll do things for, for Lent and observe that or, or Ash Wednesday. Um, we didn't this year, didn't exactly fit into the message, but it's still significant because it tells us that Easter's coming. Easter's coming. It's going to be here before we know it. And, and like Scott said, when we get back uh, from our vacation, we're going to start into right into the Easter series. So we'll have, we'll have three weeks of an Easter series and then Easter itself. So four weeks total of that. So um, invite a friend. Invite a friend. Have them come and just see, see what it's like to celebrate the Lord with a bunch of people who, who lift up Jesus. And it's going to be it's going to be good. Pastor Gabe's working on some little invite cards that she'll probably have next week, I think, or not two weeks, um, to give to a friend who just talks about our service times and things, the Easter egg hunt that we have going on. Should be a good time. So, um, so be sure and put that on your calendar and make sure that you come. All right, so we're going to get started. Um, we're in Battle for the Blessing. Obviously, it's a study in Ezra. And then we're going to segue from that right into Nehemiah because they talk about the same sort of events, kind of bookending what's going on. Um, and there's a lot going on. You're going to see as it unfolds, and I think I said this on the first time uh, that we introduced this series, that Ezra and Nehemiah are often taught in Christian leadership classes. Like it's how how to lead a group of people, how to rally support in a group of people, and they're, and they're taught in the context of leadership. I maybe, I, with apologies to anybody here who works in government, I would say maybe government leadership, it would be a good class for that, um, because it is fraught with delays and problems and, and, uh, and delays mostly. But, so we're gonna, we're gonna talk about that, but at the end, we're in chapter four right now today. We're going to cover all of chapter four today, um, but there's so much that we can take away from it, and I want to share with you at the end what the Lord showed me that this all boils down to. So to kind of a quick recap of what we've been talking about, so after seven months, so the exiles were released by Cyrus, a certain very special group of exiles who were all somehow or another related to those who were last in charge of the temple, and who kind of failed miserably at taking care of the temple and stewarding the, the holiness of the temple, they were exiled as a correction from God. And then so this special group coming back were all um, relatives, remnants, descendants of those original care, care, caregivers, caretakers, um, and it's their job, their task with a second chance. Come back. I'm going to restore you. Come back and build the temple of the Lord again. So it takes them 
seven months. Once they get back, they're freed, they come back. It takes them seven months to just get their own houses in order and just kind of get things ready uh, because, remember, their, their houses have been abandoned for, for generations. Some of them have been destroyed. Some of them have got squatters living in them. Um, but mostly it's just abandoned. It takes them a while to get the infrastructure going, get their crops going again so that they can eat, all these sorts of things. So about seven months. So now then it's time for them to get down to the business of actually restoring the temple. So again, this is from last week. They built a temporary altar, and then they start laying the foundations of the temple. And it takes them a while to get the supplies. It takes them nearly a year and a half to get the supplies. They get cedars from Lebanon. They get precious gold and jewels and, and, and all kinds of building supplies from all over the place. It takes them a year and a half to do that. So now here we are, a little over two years that they've been back, and they finally go and they, and they set the foundation. Ezra 3.11 from last week, and they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, his favor is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout of joy when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord had been laid. Just seems like a wonderful beginning, like, okay, we're back. We're back, baby. Things are going to happen now. And then, of course, with every great victory, there's somebody who's not entirely satisfied with it and needs to rain on your parade. And that's exactly what we happen. Ezra 3.12, again from last week, but we've got it here as a reminder Yet many of the priests and Levites and the heads of the father's households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of the house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy. So there's this group. Not everybody had ever even seen the original temple, Solomon's temple, the, the, the crown jewel. Not everybody had even seen that, but those who had immediately recognized that this new one wasn't going to be the same as the old one. It wasn't going to be this centerpiece of, of, of Hebrew culture that the other one was. And I said this quote from Matthew Henry last week, let not the remembrance of former afflictions drown the sense of present mercies. And to that I added, or former glories. Because either former former afflictions or former glories, either one, if you spend time looking back at them, you lead to comparisons. What's better? What's worse? And you start playing this game, that's when the spirit of pride starts to afflict you. The spirit of pride can lie to you and get you into this comparison. Yeah, this might be okay, but it's nowhere near as good before. And it makes you start questioning God's goodness, his mercy, his provision. And ultimately, you go down this road, and before you know it, you're second-guessing God. You're thinking you could have done better, or you'd have done it differently. And that's a dangerous place to be. The remedy for that spirit of pride is to repent, call on God's mercy, and he promises he'll heal your hearts and he'll heal your land. He promises that. But these guys, as far as we know, didn't either. And now they're in for a rough road. They're in for a rough road. So here's where we are, Ezra 4, we're going to do the whole chapter of Ezra 4. I'm going to read the first chunk of it to you because we're going to talk about that. This is Ezra 4, 1 through 7. Uh, if you're following along in your Bibles, all versions worded a little bit different. I use the New American Standard, NASB. 
So if you have a different version, it'll read a little bit differently. But, but here we go. Ezra 4, 1 through 7. Now, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were, re- were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's households and said to them, let us build with you. For we, like you, we seek your God, and we've been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's households of Israel said to them, you have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, but we ourselves will, build, will together build for the Lord God of Israel, just as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Verse 4, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and bribed advisors against them to frustrate their advice all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of King Darius of Persia. Now the reign, in the reign of Asherus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam, Mithridesh, Tabil, and the rest of his colleagues wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the text of the letter was written in Aramaic and translated from Aramaic. So that tells you what you're about to read in that is translated from Aramaic. So there's some translational difficulties there. But if you remember from last week, one of the things I said that as soon as you start to walk in God's plan for your life, and as soon as you step into that blessing, you will truly find out who your friends and your enemies are. And it's usually the enemies that come out of, out of the woodwork, and that's no different. So we look at Ezra 1, Ezra 4, 1, the very first verse of this section. Now, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, pause, let's pause for a second and take a look at what a big deal that was. This isn't a whole bunch of people just like naysayers standing around. This is huge. Let me show you this map. And it's not a detailed map. It's kind of a cartoony map. Israel's right in the middle, or or more accurately, Judah and Jerusalem. All those arrows are tribes who are either outright enemies or they're antagonistic. You got the Philistines, the Egyptians, the Ethiopians, the Malachites, the Edomites, the Moabites, all kinds of ites as they go all the way around. And Jerusalem's right here, smack in the middle. And they're all antagonistic to Judah and what they're doing. The only reason Judah can survive at all at this point is because they are surrounded, or or they are protected, that is, because they're a Persian protectorate. So in this case, being a part of still conquered by Persia and part of Persia at that point offers them a little bit of protection, but they're still surrounded on all sides. And these enemies weren't all that interested in this empty land of Judah and northern Israel. They weren't all that interested in it until the Jews came back, re-inhabited it, started rebuilding it, and started making progress. And as soon as they start making progress, now all of a sudden, all these enemies who just didn't want anything to do with that barren wasteland that was out there, now all of a sudden they're, they're interested. Matthew ten sixteen. Jesus told his disciples this. Behold, I am sending you out as a sheep. Did I skip one? Nope, sorry. Behold, I'm sending you out as a sheep in the midst of wolves. So be as wary as as serpents 
and as innocent as doves. It's good advice, but here's what it looks like in practice. These guys are about to experience what it looks like to be innocent as doves, but be wary as serpents because you are surrounded by wolves. So we look at Ezra verse 2, 4 2. They approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's households and said to them, Let us build with you, for like you, we seek your God. And we've been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. So how many of you think that these Jews who came down, their task roof three building, they're already two years behind schedule because it's taken them forever. How many of you think that they looked at this offer from all these surrounding people and said, yes, come help us, sure, open arms, step right in and help us? Anybody? No, you're smart. We've taught you well. They didn't at all, Ezra 4.3, but Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's households of Israel said to them, you have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, but we ourselves will together build for the Lord God of Israel, just as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded it. Seems kind of ungrateful, doesn't it? I mean, you're behind, you're trying to rebuild this thing, and these guys are all willing to help. Wouldn't, shouldn't they just say yes? In fact, they ended up le- leaning on the letter of the law, which normally they would probably ignore, but in this case, it suited their purposes to say, you know, we would let you help, but King Cyrus told us to do it. So we, you know, thanks, but I don't think it'd be right because he didn't say, and we'll, do, we'll just take care of it. Thing is, they knew they knew that that offer to help wasn't from a good heart. It was they were going to try and sabotage the project even further. All right, so this is where we take our first little kind of hyperlink. We're going to talk about the Samaritans. We kind of need to talk about that and what they mean because they say we've been sacrificing to the same God. So, okay, so maybe you're a different denomination, but we all worship the same God. Is that how that works? Samaritans get a bad rap, don't they? Anybody really know the backstory? Not everybody knows kind of the backstory. Like, why? Why do Samaritans get a bad rap? Are they, I mean, what we hear is good Samaritans, right? So that's because most Samaritans were not good. And it was uh, unusual to see a good one. That's where that came from. But let's talk about it. I'll try and make this story, it's a long story, but I'll try and make it kind of as short and concise as I can to make it make sense. About 200 years before Cyrus, the Persian, released the exiles to go back and rebuild. About 200 years prior to that, an Assyrian king, his name is Asarhaddon, which, is, which we talked about in a second ago, conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, what's, what's called Israel versus Judah, the southern kingdom. Conquered that and decided that he was going to deport a large number of Israelites to other places, mostly young men, okay? They had their homes there in this region um, uh, that was called Palestine at the time, and they were going, he was going to just deport them. And he was going to deport these young men in large part to make room for immigrants coming from Babylon and other places. See, they were, they were conquering, the Persians conquered nations all over the place, and they just had, they had people busting at the seams. Where are we going to put these people? 
So what they would do is that they would just deport people that lived in a certain place and they would replace them with a large number of their people. And in this case, they deported them from northern Israel and sent them all down into Judah, into southern Israel as we know it now. And basically, it was Babylonian colonists who were coming in. They were colonizing this area. Now, these Babylonian colonists just so happened to mostly be young men. So they're sending in these colonists as young men into a place where the young men had been removed and sent somewhere else, leaving young Israeli women. And so they start to intermarry. Quickly happens, they start to intermarry. And when they do that, they created this new kind of a hybrid race, in in the words of the Jews, a mongrel race called Samaritans. So that's where this came from. 2 Kings 17 tells us that these Samaritans, this, this hybrid group, took religious practices from all over the place. Remember the, the, the colonists themselves that were sent there by Persia to inhabit that area were already themselves came from all over the place. So they had this crazy mishmash soup of different religious practices and gods and different things that they did. They came in, intermarried with the Israeli women, and then all of a sudden started taking some of their practices. So we'll take your practice, we'll take his, we like that one, that's a cool thing, we'll do that, oh, I like the way they do that. They pull it all in and they create this kind of different soup of religion. It includes making idols to animals, worshiping stars, divination, uh, omens, Baal worship. Uh, There's even a scripture that talks about making their children walk through fire. So read 2 Kings 17 if you want to know a little bit more about that. But this practice of doing that then sort of slowly started to spread into Judah because they had relatives there. So the relatives that were left over and the relatives that were in other places, it just started to spread kind of like like a disease everywhere just through people that were interrelated and intermarried. And then it started to be a problem in northern Israel. So, after being a problem in northern Israel, problem now in Judah, um, that's what ultimately led to God saying, you have defiled the temple. You have allowed idol worship to come into the temple. This is the original temple of Solomon. Therefore, I'm going to send Babylon to correct you. That's what ultimately led to that to begin with. So, these guys when faced with these surrounding nations, largely Samaritans, coming and saying, hey, let us help you out, they're in no hurry to let that kind of influence back in. They're trying to restore the holiness of that place, not to allow now other influences in. So when you see things like that, like, why didn't they just say yes? They could have just let them help build it and then kicked them out. They didn't want that influence back in there because they'd seen what happened before. That influence came in, people quickly got led astray, and the whole situation turned sour for them. That was what led to the exile to begin with. Like, we're just now recovering. No, we don't want to let that back in. Then if we look at a little bit much 500 years later than all these things happening, we see that the Samaritans are still considered 
this mongrel race. Stay away from them. They're a problem. We see even Jesus dealing with it. Remember the story of Jesus and his disciples walking through Samaria on their way to Jerusalem, and they come into this Samaritan village. And they're looking for the people in this village. Just, just give us a place to sleep overnight. And if you've read Luke 9, I'll read it for you. Luke 9, 54, 56. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, what did they see? They saw the Samaritans say, nah, we're not going to let you stay here. Just get, move along. Keep going. They rejected letting Jesus stay in their village. So James and John saw this, and they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> but he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Remember the nickname that Jesus gave James and John? Sons of Thunder, and that's why. That's why. He's like, I appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate the sentiment of wanting to rain down fire on them, but let's hold off for now. See, Jesus hadn't been quite called to the Gentiles yet and to the Samaritans yet. So we're looking at, at all this that happened, and, and remember I told you we always want to look for Jesus. Where's, where's Jesus in these Old Testament stories? Where's, where's the gospel message in these stories? And even before this scripture in Luke that we, that we just read about getting kicked out, Jesus was also, if you remember your, your history, passing through Samaria and runs in to a woman at the well. Anybody know that story? Ran into the woman at the well. That's from John. John 4, 7 through 10. Let me read you this little snippet. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. So the, so the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, though you're a Jew, are asking me for a drink, though I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus replied to her, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So if you remember this story, Jesus actually goes on. He's talking to this woman. She says she doesn't have a husband. And he goes, you're right. You've had five. You've had several. And the man you're with now is not even your husband. So in that, you're right. You don't have a husband. This is how Jesus is perfect in the way he brings truth in a loving way because rather than to be turned off by that, because that woman could have said, who are you to tell me? But the way he says it, he calls her on her sin, reveals the lie, but he also reveals to her that he is the Christ. And what does she do? She runs back into town to just tell everybody what happened to her. How many of us have interactions, let's just call it, with people where we want to call them on their sin, call them on their attitudes. And the way that we do it responds with them going, I want what you have. I want more of that. I just met the living Christ. That should be our model. We can call them on our sin. Jesus was, was blunt. He didn't say, well, yeah, you know, you've had a rough life, and I get it that, you know, you've bounced around, and, and poor you, poor you. He goes, yeah, you're right. You've had hot five husbands, and the guy you're with now isn't even one of them. Stop doing that. But he does it in such a loving way that she is drawn to him, goes back and tells people in the village, and they're drawn to him. 
Sinful or not, Samaritan or not, Jesus loved and revealed himself to this woman. And then word started to spread. It's not until after the resurrection, if you remember the story from Acts, after the resurrection, Jesus comes and he appears to his disciples. And that's when he tells them this. It's the last thing he says to them before he ascends to heaven for good. Acts 1.8 it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and as far as the remotest part of the earth. If you keep reading Acts later in chapter 8, Philip is actually sent specifically to the Samaritans to evangelize them and to share the gospel with them because the time was right But despite being from the wrong village and being with the wrong people, Jesus had compassion for the individual Samaritans that he came across and later on, obviously, offered salvation to them all. That is something that we can all take away. It doesn't matter where you're from, what side of the tracks you're from. Jesus has compassion for you and invites you into his gospel message, invites you to eternal life. And this is something that people at the time especially in the time of Ezra, would have had a hard time with. Like those people, they're nothing but bad news. Why do we want to associate with them? Why do we want them anywhere near this? And you're going to see how it plays out for them here. So these guys, these, these group of all the different ites, but they're kind of bundled into Samaritans, um, they didn't take kindly to having their help refused. Oh, well, okay. Ezra 4, 4 and 5. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah. There's a gentle word for the things that they did. And frightened them from building and bribed advisors against them to frustrate their advice all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. (coughs) Here's our next construction delay. 16 years. Frustrated and delayed, and frightened, and discouraged. Another 16, not, uh, yeah, 16 years. 16 years. So you think the two years they're already behind schedule is a big deal? Construction stopped for 16 years. And what the guys decided, all these guys tasked with rebuilding the temple, we're talking about priests and Levites and, and all the people that are, that are supposed to be holy and guardians of the temple, they said, it's just too tough. It's too, it's too difficult. It's too dangerous to keep rebuilding the temple. Let's just go back home. Let's just work on our own homes and work on our fields and do all that stuff, and maybe, hopefully, this will blow over. 16 years they did that. In this meantime, the Samaritans even went so far as to rebuild their own temple in their own lands on a mount called Gerizim. We have a, a picture. This is what you can see to this day of that temple, that, that counterfeit temple that they build. That's the, the foundation that's left. The renderings of what it would have looked like are, are not that great now, so I didn't pull one up, but it's still there. Mount Gerizim, you can go. This is the counterfeit temple that they build. You won't let us help you with yours? We'll build our own. So that's what they, which of course causes even more, even more strife and even more animosity. After 16 years, it finally takes serious intervention from God to get them back in the saddle, 
to get them to re-engage. And the prophet Haggai, he actually relays the words of the Lord, and he says this. This is Haggai 1, 9 through 11. These are the words of the Lord as relayed through the prophet Haggai. You start an ambitious project, but behold, it comes to little when you bring it home. I will blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of armies, it is because of my house which remains desolate while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on mankind, on cattle, and all the products of the labor of your hands. Saying, hey, you, you gave up on what I told you to do. So you are now going to live in the curse that results from that. Thankfully, they get a little bit of a little bit of steam from that, and they start working again. Now, the next several verses in the chapter, just so you know, carry this theme. It jumps around time. So if you're trying to make, if you're trying to make sense of the next several verses, it's tough because it jumps around in time and space. But the general theme is all the different kings and leaders and enemies that opposed their efforts to get back in and start the construction up again. The one that finally gets traction, though, they're writing letters. They're writing all, all these enemies, all these ites, are writing letters to the king of Persia, saying, do you know all the things that they're doing? We need to stop them. We need your help to stop them. You need to tell them to quit. And they're justifying their own efforts to stop the construction. But there's finally one in verse 13 that gets some traction. And see if you can guess why it gains traction. They finally have this epiphany. I know what we'll say. This will get the king of Persia on our side. Ezra 4.13. Now let it be known to the king that if that city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, custom tax, or toll. And it will be detrimental to the revenue of the kings. Okay, that finally gets some traction. Verse 14 goes on. Now, because we are in the service of the palace, and it's not fitting for us to see the king's shame, for this reason we have sent word and informed the king. Sounds totally heartfelt and legit, right? Of course, no other motive, no other agenda whatsoever than just to make sure that the king is not dishonored. So they go on, they ask the king to search the archives. They're like, you know, it's not just us saying that these people are bad news. Go back and look at the archives. Look at the history, and you'll see that these people have been trouble since the very beginning. So Artaxerxes does just that. He's the leader of Persia at this time, the king. And he finds that, yeah, according to what I'm reading here, these Jews definitely have a checkered past. They have been a thorn in the side of anybody who's, who's ruled over them. So he immediately just orders a stop to construction. Stop. We're done. You're not going any further than that. Remember, it was Cyrus who actually gave them the authorization to do it. That's been lost in history. This is another reason why we cannot forget the history. We cannot forget the things that happened before or you're just doomed to go down that road again. So Ezra 4.24, then the work of the house of God in Jerusalem was discontinued, and it was stopped 
until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. That's another 16 years. Anybody doing the math? We're up to about 34 years of delays in construction. This is why I said a government project versus any kind of leadership. (laughs) Again, apologies to those of you who are in government. That's it for our scripture for today, though. Let's find Jesus in this. Let's go and see where Jesus and the gospel message is in here. And I think the Lord showed me something here. In the times of Zerubbabel and Ezra and the, and the rebuilding project of the temple, even though they were given the means and the authority to do it, they were given everything they needed to do it, the enemies tried to stop it by any means possible, any way that they could. And what these guys ultimately decided to do, let's take the easier path. Let's let ourselves get discouraged. Let's just go wait it out. Let's just see if it goes away instead of battling for the blessing that God gave them. They let things discourage them. And they seem surprised by it. We should not be surprised by it today. Anytime you start walking in God's blessing, opposition will come against you. I look at that as I know I'm on the right path when I start hitting that opposition. So we shouldn't be surprised by that. These guys were, and they let it delay them. And this is a continuation. This isn't a new thing that happened there. It's not a new thing that happens today. It is a continuation of what happened in the very beginning. We're going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where there was promised that there would be constant trouble between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. Genesis 3.15 says that. I will make enemies of you and the woman, And of your offspring and her descendants, they shall bruise you on the head, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. He's talking about and setting up, this is going to be a lifelong struggle between Jesus and the power of darkness. Lifelong. It's nothing new and it's nothing uh, uncommon and it continues today. John 10.10 said this, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have came that they would have life and have it abundantly. That's no joke. That is the whole plan, that is the whole purpose of the enemy, of Satan, of the thief, of all the names that he goes by, to steal the blessing that God has for you. Remember from last week that I said that upon seeing the foundation of the new temple being laid, a lot of these elders were upset And they ended up having to be corrected from Haggai. Again, I quoted this scripture last week too. Haggai 2.9, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. Saying, don't don't worry that it's not everything you'd hoped it would be because later on, it's not even going to matter. It's going to be so much greater. No matter what the building looks like, the glory is going to be so much greater than what it was before. And he's talking, he's comparing it to Solomon's temple, just coated in gold and jewels. He says, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of armies. And a generation before that, a generation before he said that and reminded them of that, another prophet named Ezekiel spoke also from exile. He was in Babylon and he said this, Ezekiel 36, 24 through 36, 24 through 26. 
For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands and I will bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you (coughs) and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. Listen to this. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. If we look back at that, a couple of those key words there in verse 26, I will put a new spirit within you. This isn't just, yay, who's got spirit for rebuilding the temple? That word spirit is the Hebrew word ruach, which is the same one as the spirit of God. Saying, I will put the spirit of God in you. And the word within you translates as charis, which means literally becomes a part of you. It becomes a part of your body. Ezekiel is telling him, don't worry. The spirit of God will soon be a part of you. And it's not going to matter what this temple building looks like. Ezekiel 36, 27. The next verse after that. And I will put my spirit within you and bring it about that you will walk in my statutes and are careful and follow my ordinance. If you walk in my statutes. I'm going to read that again. I'm getting ahead of myself. And I will put my spirit within you and bring it about that you walk in my statutes and are careful and follow my ordinances. They couldn't, they had no idea what that truly meant. But sitting here thousands of years later, we've got the benefit of Bible studies and messages and commentaries and and history that we can look back and we can maybe start to understand what Paul was trying to say. Again, Paul, hundreds of years after all that happened, 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 17, Paul said this, it's right there. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy that person. For the temple of God is holy. That is what you are. He's trying to say all this stuff, all this prophecy that you've heard, the temple will live within you, all that. Here's what it means. I love that Paul did that. All these centuries of prophets and, and prophetic words and, every, and words from God all over. Let me boil it down for you. You are a temple of God. The Spirit of God dwells in you. Oh. Amen. Can you imagine that? Does that put a new emphasis on keeping yourself and your words, the things you think, the things you do? keeping them holy and in line with what God would want. You are his temple. These people fought for centuries over the temple. The temple was the centerpiece of all religious things. It was their crowning glory, and it's where God's spirit lived, and they fought over it, and they battled over it, and they had to go back and rebuild it time and time again. It's been built, fought over, destroyed, built, fought over, destroyed again and again. Now that's you. You're not just some random thing here for no reason. You are God's temple and his spirit lives in you. Does that put a little different feel on how you conduct your life? It should. 
You're not just here to take up space until the time he calls you home. You are now his temple, his crowning glory where his spirit lives. That's in you. Let that sink in for a minute. Since the time of the first exodus from Egypt, the temple's been that place where the glory of God resided. And when Christ ascended to heaven, the spirit of God indwelled in those who believe in him. And so if we're looking at centuries and, and, and centuries and centuries of the temple being contentious, being fought over, being sought after by the enemies, being destroyed, being counterfeited, being, being twisted and perverted, being rededicated, all these things, this constant fight and struggle to keep the temple holy, why would the new temple be any less contentious? Why would there be any less of a fight to twist and pervert and take each one of us in which the temple resides? Why would that be any less contentious now than it has been through history? The answer is it's not. It's even more of a battle because rather than one enemy that we can all stand shoulder to shoulder and say, let's surround this temple and protect it and fight to the death for it, now we all fight our own individual battles and we fight them every day wherever we are. It's still a battle. It just happens in our hearts and minds. And if we don't stand together and we don't understand that we don't fight this battle alone, we have Christ and the Holy Spirit to fight this battle with us. Because if we stand alone out in the wilderness and thinking I'm on my own to fight this, guess what's gonna happen? You will lose. But as a body of Christ, it's why we gather together. It's why we support one another, why we love and encourage and correct when necessary one another because we are in a battle. And the question is, will you battle for it? Or, like these guys, will you give up and choose the easier path? Because sometimes it's hard, especially you talk about your workplace or maybe with family. It's hard to battle for that. And sometimes it's easy just to say, let's just take the easier path. Let's just go home and work, keep, keep our mind in our own business and just work on our own stuff until this blows over. The question is, will the battle be worth it? If we all fight this battle, will the battle be worth it? I can't answer the first two questions. Will you battle for it? I don't know. That's up to you. Will you give up and choose the easier path? That's up to you. But the last question, will the battle be worth it? I can tell you, yes. The battle will be worth it. Absolutely. And the thing is, you don't have to fight the battle alone. You don't have to fight the battle alone. Christ has promised it. I believe it. And so I'll fight for it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so humbled to be in your presence here today. We are so grateful to be able to look at your word through history and see that you have always been faithful, even when people turn their back on you or put you low on their list of priorities, you have been faithful to restore what you call holy, what you call precious, and what you call sacred. And so, Father, knowing that you put your temple in us, we are your temple, your spirit lives in us,
Lord, let us see life differently. Let us see our everyday differently. We are not just Christians going through life. We are, we are your, your fort, your, your stalwart protection in this world that we go through, and you are with us. So let us not fight our battles alone. We stand shoulder to shoulder with you. The Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Sovereign God Almighty is on our side. And if you are on our side, who can be against us? It's only the enemy that convinces us that we will lose these battles. Your word promises us we will win these battles. So Lord, I pray that everything you face us with today, every situation we walk into tomorrow, everything that we face in this coming week, Lord, we see it with the realization that we are not free agents walking around by ourselves. We are part of something bigger. And that bigger thing is your spirit. And we are part of your kingdom. We represent you with everything we do. Give us strength. Give us wisdom. And let us do this with love. Not as blunt instrument clubs going through this world. But as love that can face someone in their sin. Correct them. And still be loving to them. Lord, that's a hard trick in these days. But I know that Jesus did it. I know you want us to do it. So give us the wisdom, give us the strength, and we will follow you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. All right, guys, we're gonna go into communion right now. Uh, we'll have two stations over here, and over here there's wine uh, and bread and gluten-free crackers over there. We have self-serve in the back if you'd like to go self-serve. But take this time as you listen to the words of the worship, let it just soak over you and realize who you're meant to be, who God says you are, regardless of who you say you are, God says you're something more than that. So rest in that today. Let that soak over you until it's real, and then come celebrate what Christ has done. Amen? Thank you, guys.